One of the unique aspects about our American culture is that for the most part, we are not a people who like a lot of pomp and circumstance or royal procession. I've noticed this through the years as even events such as weddings and graduations are becoming increasingly informal. Now, I'm not suggesting that there is a right or wrong with personal preference on these types of things, but I'm just pointing out the differences that exist in various cultures. For example, most of us are familiar with the royal family in England, and there is at least a casual interest in some of the events associated with them and their lives. There are some occasions when you can see a lot of royal formality. The reason why I'm mentioning this is because the world of the Bible had a lot more of that than we do here in the United States. The ancient Middle East had countries or regions or people groups who were ruled by kings. And because they were ruled by kings... There were certain aspects of their culture marked by specific royal practices and procedures. For instance, whenever a king traveled, the king had envoys or a forerunner who would go ahead of him to make sure the journey was safe and to prepare the way and to announce his coming. That is very important biblical imagery behind the story of the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is king, and therefore, he had an envoy. He had a forerunner. He had someone who went before him to prepare the way and to announce his coming. That man is commonly known as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, and he is the focus of the opening verses of the Gospel of Mark. Please turn with me in your Bible to the very first chapter of Mark's Gospel, and please follow along as I read verses 1 through 8, which will form our text of consideration this morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. As you can see from reading through these verses, Mark opens his gospel in a way that is quite different from the other gospel writers. Matthew starts his gospel by presenting the regal genealogy of Jesus the King. The genealogy of Jesus is set forth in Matthew's gospel to show he has the right to the throne. Luke starts his gospel with the virgin birth of Jesus. John starts his gospel with the eternality and deity of Jesus. 
But Mark starts his gospel with the divinely commissioned forerunner of Jesus. Notice that Mark skips right over the genealogy of Jesus. He skips right over the birth of Jesus. Those kinds of things would have been unimportant to Mark's Roman readers. They didn't care about his birth. They didn't care about his genealogy. They, as Romans, would have wanted to know what Jesus did. What did he do in life? What did he accomplish? So Mark jumped right into the events that preceded Christ's public ministry. Mark begins his gospel with a title in verse 1, and then he launches right into a description of the divinely commissioned forerunner of Jesus. So notice how John or Mark begins this gospel account. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As I just mentioned a moment ago, this verse is actually a title. Mark calls this book that he's about to write, he calls this work the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that is exactly what this is. This book records the beginning of the gospel. The word gospel here is the Greek word euangelion, and it means good news. So this is the beginning of the good news that continued on into the book of Acts and continues on to our very day. And that is why Mark calls it the beginning of the gospel. Euangelion was a common word in Mark's day, especially in the Roman world. It was used in the cult of the emperor worship. As you probably know, many of the Caesars claimed to be divine or deity, so they demanded worship. They demanded to be worshipped. Therefore, whenever a favorable announcement was made about the emperor, it was called euangelion, or good news. The town herald would stand in the village square and shout, Good news! Euangelion! The emperor's wife has given birth to a son, or whatever the announcement happened to be. So the Romans, Mark's audience, the Romans were familiar with this term, euangelion, or good news. But Mark wants his readers to know that what he is going to write about in this book is euangelion, or, or good news, about Jesus Christ. This is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. By the way, this is the same word, euangelion, that was used in the Septuagint to describe the announcement of the end of the Babylonian captivity and the good news that former captives were now free to return to their beloved, ho uh, beloved homeland from which they had been exiled for many bitter years. That was good news. To be exiled from the homeland that you love and then to be told you can return, that's good news. But it doesn't compare to the good news that Mark writes about in this book. Mark is going to announce how we can be free from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. Mark is going to tell about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, who is the Son of God, and that's good news. As Mark introduces this one who is the embodiment of the good news, notice that he uses his full title. Mark refers to him as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's break that down. The word Jesus is the Greek word for the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means Yahweh is 
salvation. So that is actually a name. Yeshua, Jesus in English. The next word, however, is not a name, though most people think it is a name. Most people think that Jesus Christ is the first and last name of the Lord Jesus, but the word Christ is not a name. It is actually a title. The word Christ, Christos in Greek, means anointed one, and it is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach, anointed one, or we say Messiah. So Jesus Christ literally means Jesus, Messiah. Or you can flip it around, Messiah, Jesus. That's a startling claim with which to begin your historical record. In the very first verse, actually in the title, Mark asserts that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Hebrew Scripture. That is quite a claim. But it's even less than the assertion of the next phrase, which is the phrase, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is a statement of deity. When Jesus is called the Son of God in the pages of Scripture, that is a title of deity. We might not recognize that immediately because of our cultural grid and and the way we see things or hear that phrase, But the people of the first century would have clearly understood what was being said by that phrase. Jesus is the Son of God. That is, He is God in human flesh. He is the long-awaited Messiah. That's what this book is all about. It is about His life. It is about His ministry. It's about His death. It's about His resurrection. It is a book of good news. And that is the title of Mark's gospel record. Now, that's all the introduction that Mark gives. That's it. This is his introduction. And then he jumps right into a description of the king's forerunner. It's interesting to me that the first thing that Mark does after his opening title is to give a description of the forerunner of Jesus. The reason why I find that interesting is that throughout this gospel record, Mark presents Jesus as a servant or maybe more accurately, as a slave. Jesus is presented as a perfect servant, not so much as a king. It is Matthew's gospel account that presents Jesus as king, but that is not the emphasis of Mark's gospel. His emphasis is on Jesus as the perfect servant of Yahweh, and you usually don't think of a servant or a slave having an envoy or a forerunner. But this is the uniqueness of Jesus. He is the perfect servant of Yahweh, but he is also a king. As a king, he had a forerunner. So you could call John the king's forerunner or, though it sounds strange, the servant's forerunner. Before we look at these verses about John... I want to remind you of what Jesus had to say about this man. It's important that we understand just how special he was. So back up with me one gospel record to the gospel of Matthew chapter 11. Just back a few pages. Matthew's gospel chapter 11. And we'll pick it up in verse 7. 
Matthew records this conversation that Jesus had. Verse 7, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? As you know, if you have read the gospel accounts, John attracted quite a bit of attention. He was in some ways an unusual sort of fellow. For one thing, he carried out his ministry way out in the wilderness, away from uh, the capital city of Jerusalem, away from the large population centers, way out in the wilderness. Secondly, his message was a fiery message of repentance. Thirdly, his dress was a little strange in that he was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. Fourthly, his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. Fifthly, he dunked people in water. So even though he was way out in the wilderness, many people flocked to see him and hear him. They were interested in this guy. They were intrigued by him. Now that doesn't mean that all those people heeded his message genuinely, but many were intrigued by this unusual man. And that is why Jesus poses this question here in verse 7. In essence, he was saying to the multitudes, what motivated you to go out to see John? Why did you do it? What were you expecting? The last phrase here in this verse, a reed shaken by the wind, was a description of someone who was uncertain, someone who was vacillating, shifting, wavering in his convictions. It describes a fickle person who could be swayed by public opinion. That certainly wasn't John. He was no reed shaken by the wind. So Jesus is saying, what did you expect when you went out to see John? Some sort of Casper Milktoast kind of guy, some guy easily shaken, easily shifting, wavering. No, no, that wasn't John. Not, not at all. On the contrary. The next verse, Jesus says, but what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. In other words, Jesus was saying John wasn't a member of the aristocracy. He dressed in camel's hair, not royal apparel. He wasn't a part of the nobility of society. He wasn't among the movers and shakers of society. He was just a normal, average, ordinary man. Yet he was, in the Lord's estimation, a great man. Look at verse 9. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Was John a prophet? Yes, he was a prophet. He was actually, and we maybe don't think of it this way because his ministry occurs in the New Testament, in the gospel accounts, but think of it this way. He was actually the last and final culmination of all the Old Testament prophets. He really belongs in the category of Old Testament prophets. He was the last and final culmination of all the Old Testament prophets. But Jesus says here, oh, he was a prophet, yes, but he was more than a prophet. Jesus said all of these things to emphasize that the people's estimation of John, their understanding of John, was far less than it should have been. Oh, he was a novelty to people. That's why they went out there to see him and hear him to see what he was doing. He, he was a curiosity but Jesus is saying John was far greater of a man than most people realized. 
They looked at this man, and he seemed a little unusual, a little strange, and they very easily underestimated just how significant this man was. Jesus says he was more than a prophet. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the forerunner of the King. He was the one chosen by God, prepared by God, sent by God to prepare the way for the King. Only one such man had that privilege. Only one such man had that responsibility. It was John. That's why Jesus is trying to exalt his uh, perspective or the perspective of him in the eyes of the multitudes. In verse 10, Jesus said, For this is he of whom it was written, it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. John was the greatest man to have lived up until his time. Think about that statement. According to Jesus, John was the greatest man to have lived up until his time. That is a staggering statement. When you think about men like Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Job and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and others... John, according to Jesus, John was even greater than they were. And in verse 12, Jesus says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. But all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, this statement by Jesus introduces us to an interesting relationship between John and Elijah. Over in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 21, not John the Baptist, two different guys. In John 1, 21, a delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem asked John the Baptist this question. What then? Are you Elijah? They wanted to know who this man was. He was... He was sort of raising curiosity among the people, so they felt a responsibility to find out, Who are you? Are you Elijah? The reason those Jews asked that question was because in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, God has said that before the coming of the Messiah, Elijah would come. But the Jews failed to recognize the figurative language, so they thought Elijah would physically return. They figured that since Elijah had been taken up to heaven without experiencing death, he would come back physically. And this was a very strong belief among the Jewish people, still is to this day. They looked for the actual physical appearance of Elijah to take place. So when John was asked the question, are you Elijah? He said, no, no, I am not Elijah returning in the flesh. But catch this. John was the prophet who fulfilled Malachi 4, 5, and chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, because Luke 1, 17 specifically says so, and Jesus says the same thing here. John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he wasn't actually Elijah returning in the flesh. 
And his role was so important. His place, his, the, the, the position he occupied was so important that Jesus ends this section with a statement to grab our attention and to make us stop to think, to emphasize how significant it is for us to understand these things. He says in verse 15, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That was our Lord's way of saying, hold it. Whatever you're thinking about, stop and think about this. This is so important. You, it's, it's our Lord's way of saying you need to understand John's unique, significant role in how great of a man he was. Well, that raises the question, why was John the Baptist such a great man? Interestingly, we have no record anywhere in Scripture that John ever performed a miracle. There were a lot of men in Scripture who performed miracles. It would be easy to assume they were greater than John. But John was greater, yet he never performed a miracle. In fact, if you look at his ministry, you don't see anything about it that is flamboyant in any way. Yet Jesus said he was the greatest. Why? Why? Simply put, here's the answer. He was faithful to do what God had called him to do to be the forerunner of the Messiah, and then to step out of the way. That was his job description. Prepare the way, announce the way, and then get out of the way. Just step out of the way. He fulfilled his role. And Mark begins his gospel record by telling about this man's ministry. Now let's go back to Mark chapter 1 to see what Mark has to say about it. After the opening title in verse 1, Mark begins his actual account of the gospel. We have verse 1 in our Bibles as in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and it's fine to title that as verse 1, but in a sense you could say that's actually the title, and verse 2 begins the gospel. Here's how Mark begins after his title. As it is written in the prophets... Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is a combination quote from three passages out of Hebrew Scripture. It's a combination quote from Exodus 23.20, Malachi 3.1, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. This combination quote describes the common scenario in ancient times to which I alluded in the introduction. A monarch traveling in wilderness regions would have a crew of workmen go ahead to make sure the road was clear of debris, obstructions, potholes, and other hazards that made the journey difficult. And that's what John was supposed to do in a spiritual sense. He was to clear the path of obstacles so the king could come through. He was to prepare people's hearts spiritually in an attempt to make them ready for the king. That was his job. That was his role. That was his job description. How did he do that? How did he prepare people's hearts to make them ready for the king? Mark tells us in verse 4. He says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. 
John's ministry consisted of preaching repentance to the people and baptizing those who had truly repented. Mark tells us that John was baptizing out in the wilderness. Why would he baptize out in the wilderness? After all, you might assume if you're going to have a ministry to people, you go where the people are. John went where the people weren't. He went out in the wilderness. Why? There are probably a couple answers to that question. For one thing, there aren't a lot of water sources in Israel. So he had to go where the water was sufficient enough for people to be immersed. That was his ministry, a baptizing ministry. You immerse people in baptism, so you have to go to a place where there's water where you can immerse people. John 3.23 tells us this fact because it says, quote, Now John also was baptizing near at Aenon, near Salim, because there was much water there. Did you catch that last phrase? Because there was much water there. John went out in the wilderness, probably somewhere near the north end of the Dead Sea, where the Jordan River flows by and provides an opportunity to find a significant pool of water, large enough, deep enough to baptize people. But there was probably another reason why John went out into the wilderness, and that would have been so that he could carry out his ministry without being hassled by the religious leaders of Israel in the capital city of Jerusalem. Had John tried to carry out his ministry in Jerusalem, he would have been blockaded, he would have been, you know, obstructions thrown at him, all sorts of prohibitions. So John strategically went out into the wilderness, and he knew that anyone who was really serious about repenting and being baptized would make the trek out there to him. And let me tell you something, lots of people did, as we'll see in a few minutes from verse 5. But before we leave verse 4, we need to comment on, on the phrase, a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, or a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There are a couple ways to take that phrase, and both of them line up with what Scripture teaches elsewhere. But there is one way to take the phrase that would contradict the teaching of Scripture elsewhere. Those who take the phrase to mean that baptism grants people forgiveness of sins refuse to see that such an interpretation would violate the clear teaching of Scripture in passages such as 1 Corinthians 1.17, which says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That verse, along with many others, proves that the good news of forgiveness is not connected to or dependent on baptism. The good news of forgiveness is that those who truly repent of their sins will be forgiven. That's the good news. So you can read this verse that way by connecting repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Look at the verse. John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The other way to take the verse is to realize that the preposition translated for here in this verse, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, is the the exact same Greek preposition that Jesus used in Matthew 12, 41, when he said the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
And the word there clearly means because of. The people repented because of the preaching of Jonah. So you can read this verse as saying the people repented and were forgiven and then were baptized because of the forgiveness of sins. After all, that is the role of baptism. That is the the purpose of baptism. It is the Lord's way for a saved sinner to say, I have repented of my sins and I have been forgiven. And that was exactly what a lot of people in ancient Israel did in response to John's ministry. In verse 5, Mark tells us, Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This brings up an interesting point. It's important to note that a lot of the common people in the land of Israel responded to John's call to repentance And they were baptized to prove that they had responded. However, here's the contrast. The Jewish leaders were the ones who resisted John and were threatened by John. Luke 7, 29 and 30 says, And when all the people heard him, that is, heard Jesus, even the tax collectors acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. That's what Mark is telling us here. There was a clear distinction in the land, a clear divide. Many, many people in the southern province of Judea and in the capital city of Jerusalem made their way out into the wilderness to confess their sins, to repent, and to be baptized by John. Then Mark tells us, now John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. John's clothing would have undoubtedly reminded his audience of another prophet who had ministered in the land of Israel, and that was the prophet Elijah. Elijah was was one of the greatest prophets ever in the land of Israel, and it was a common belief of the people, as I said earlier, that he would come back on the scene before the coming of the Messiah. So John purposely dressed in such a way to connect with that thought in the people's minds, and it was a way to demonstrate that he too was a prophet of God, just as Elijah was a prophet. Remember, there had not been a prophet in the land of Israel for approximately 400 years. 400 years. So when John showed up, dressed like a prophet, the great prophet Elijah, claiming to be the Messiah's forerunner, he attracted a huge amount of attention. His dress alone called attention to his uniqueness, and so did his diet. The last phrase in this verse says he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, it is certainly possible that John did eat locusts, you know, the little bugs that fly around and eat crops and all of that. It's possible that he ate locusts because they were not forbidden under the dietary laws of the Old Covenant. But the Greek word used here can also refer to carob pods, which grow on trees in Israel. In fact, it's interesting to note that the carob tree to this day is commonly called St. John's bread. Therefore, a number of biblical scholars believe John ate 
carob pods and wild honey, both of which could be found out in the wilderness in abundance, but it raises the question as to whether or not you could find an abundance of locusts all the time uh, to form a, a substantial diet. But whatever his meal, whatever his meal, that was far less important than his message. Verse 7 gives us that. Verse 7 tells us, And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. John, in his preaching, not only called people to repentance, he also pointed them to the Messiah. He made it abundantly clear that he was not the Messiah. He was only the messenger of the Messiah. John 1.20 says, He did not, speaking of John the Baptist, He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. In other words, He made it clear and plain, He was not the Messiah. Because there had not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years, it is understandable that people would jump to the conclusion that this unique man of God was the promised Messiah. John knew that some people would, would draw that wrong conclusion. That's why he repeatedly made it clear that he was not the Messiah. In fact, he made it clear that he was not anywhere close to the same status as the Messiah. He said, there comes one after me who is mightier than I. In John 3.30, he said, he must increase and I must decrease. John was a mighty prophet, a mighty man of God, but he knew where he stood in relation to Messiah Jesus. He knew exactly where he stood. He expressed it here in this verse by saying, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. That's an interesting statement. Because you see, there was a popular rabbinic saying of the day that went like this. Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal strap. So John the baptizer is saying this. A disciple will stoop low for his master, for his teacher, but not low enough to unloose his sandal strap. Only a slave will do that. But I am not even worthy to unloose his sandal strap. John clearly didn't want the focus to be on him and his ministry. He baptized people who had repented and wanted to get their hearts right for the soon coming of Messiah Jesus. But when Messiah came, John says, listen, I'm baptizing you with water, but when Messiah comes, it's going to be a whole different story. Verse 8, he says, I indeed baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John informed them that his baptism was only a prelude to or a preparation for the coming of the Messiah. His baptism ministry was intended to point people to Messiah Jesus. John was basically saying this here in this verse, if you think my baptizing work is supposed to draw attention to me, you've missed the point. I'm nothing compared to the Messiah. I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John was not talking about water baptism when he said this, although Jesus did see to it 
that his followers were baptized in water. The Gospel of John chapter 4 verse 1 tells us that. But here in this verse, John is not talking about Messiah performing water baptism. He is talking about another kind of baptism. He is talking about the, the Messiah baptizing with the Spirit. To what does this refer? Thankfully, we don't have to guess. According to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, all believers in Jesus Christ have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the act of God that places us in the body of Christ. That is why John says when the Messiah comes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. All those who repent and place faith in Messiah are baptized with or by the Holy Spirit. So John is basically saying this, listen, listen, I am nothing. I am nothing compared to Messiah Jesus. I am simply calling you to repentance, but he is the one who can actually save you. My baptism is a symbolic act with no salvific power, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit that he will grant to you will take you out of the kingdom of darkness and place you into his kingdom and save you. That was John's message. But there was another part of his message that Mark doesn't record here. So back up with me to Matthew 3 as we close this morning. Because in Matthew 3, we see the same statement that Mark records, but Matthew adds one additional comment. He records one additional comment. Matthew 3 is sort of the parallel passage to our text in Mark 1. And look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. This is John again. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now notice that this account adds the words, and fire. What is the baptism of fire? It is described in the next verse, verse 12. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But, here's the contrast, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Those who do not repent and place faith in Messiah Jesus will experience a baptism of fiery judgment. The basic meaning of the word baptize is to immerse. So those who do not repent and place faith in Messiah Jesus will be immersed in unquenchable fire. They will be baptized in fire, immersed in fire. Now, that is not a pleasant picture, but, but it's the truth. That's what John was saying. He is saying this is what will happen to people who do not repent and place faith in Messiah Jesus. This verse uses the word picture of, of threshing a harvest so as to separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat, which is a picture of true believers who bring forth fruit, will be gathered in. But the chaff, which, which is a picture of those who do not repent and place faith in Jesus, will be baptized with fire in that they will experience the fiery judgment of God. So basically what John is saying here is this. 
when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, I'm preparing the way for him, but when he comes, he is going to divide all of humanity into two categories. Those who are saved, that is, baptized with the Holy Spirit, placed into the body of Christ, those who are not saved and who will experience a baptism of fire that is immersed in a fiery judgment. John is saying Jesus will make it clear in his ministry that there are only two categories of people in this world. Only two. In fact, I would say this. You. You are in one of these two categories. You have repented of your sin and believed in Jesus Christ with the result that your life brings forth fruit, or you have not repented of your sin, which means you will be baptized or immersed in the fire of God's judgment one day. Now, that's not a threat. That's not a scare tactic. It's, a, it's just a fact. This is what John says. I'm preparing the way for the Messiah, and when he comes, he will make it clear that all of humanity falls into one of these two categories. So the question that presents itself to us today is this, very simply. Which category are you in? You are in one or the other. You're in the category of those who have been saved by Christ, baptized with His Holy Spirit to place us in the body of Christ, or you are in the other category which will experience a baptism of fiery judgment. There's no in-between. There is no middle ground. You are in one or the other. And John prepared the way for the Messiah who gave that message to make it clear to humanity. You are in one or the other. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head this morning and close your eyes to think about what you have seen in God's Word this morning, ask yourself that question once again. Which category are you in? Seriously, really, which category are you in? You have repented of your sin, been saved by Christ, And if you've been saved by Christ, he has baptized you with his Holy Spirit, which means you have been placed in the body of Christ, taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed in the body of Christ. You're either in that category or you're in the category of those who will face a baptism of fiery judgment. If there's any doubt in your mind where you stand, or if you know that where you stand is on the wrong side, you need to repent. It's the same message that John gave. Repent. Let go of your sin. Turn from your sin. Whatever is holding you back, turn to the Lord Jesus. Confess your sin to him. Acknowledge your sin. Call out to him for forgiveness. And he will hear. He will forgive. He will save. Father, as we think about the ministry of John and the words of Jesus about him, extolling his greatness, may it be a reminder to us that John's greatness was was due to the fact that he was simply faithful. He did what he was called to do. He did what he was commissioned to do. And may the same be true of us. May we live our lives faithfully, just fulfilling the role you have for us, whatever that happens to be. And in closing, we pray for anyone here in our midst who is facing a baptism of fiery judgment. May your Holy Spirit draw that man or woman or young person, whoever it is, 
to repentance today, to faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.